friends. Today I'm going to try doing things in a more freeform style. So we'll see how that works out. All right, today I'd like to talk about hedonic adaptation. Uh, this is a concept that I introduced in episode two, I believe. It's very, very core to my uh, entire argument about the utopian trap. Um, but in that episode, I kind of just introduced it and sort of assumed people um, know what it is. Um, but it's a very deep concept, um, and there's a lot of good science behind it. So um, I figured I'd dig deeper into that and flesh it out. <clears throat> so um, my personal journey with regards to hedonic adaptation, um, I think is, is really relevant to how significant it is for me. Uh, back when I was in high school, I was struggling with some depressive episodes. I think in part, I mean, there were due to a lot of things, but part of it was my habit of using marijuana. Um, and I think my marijuana use was a really big part of like me understanding what hedonic adaptation is and how it works. I didn't know it was termed that scientifically until uh, probably like almost a decade later. Um, but at the time, I sort of came up with this thesis that happiness is constant in the long run. And um, yeah, this is something I sort of started to realize as I was, you know, using marijuana to kind of make me feel happy. And then I was realizing, oh, but I kind of feel not so good in a few hours or the next day. And so I sort of came up in my mind, it seems like what happens when I smoke weed, and this is not true these days, but, uh, you know, over a decade ago, um, what would happen is I would feel a huge boost in happiness. And so it was like my happiness was spiking. But then I would notice that over time it would drop and then it would actually end up going below where it was before I smoked. And then it would take a long time to get back up to uh, the baseline that I had started at. So I think painting that picture, that little graph of a spike and then a dip and you go below where you started and then slowly come back up over time. Um, I think that's a good place to start sort of with the uh, science of hedonic adaptation as well, because we can start to look at things graphically and understand um, how does happiness fluctuate over the course of any time span. Um, so yeah, so I guess the next step in painting that picture is to sort of see what happens if we assume that basically everything thing we do, every interaction we have, everything we put in our body, every experience, every thought has a little bit of a 
you could call it like a drug-like effect like that. So either a spike up and then back down and slowly coming back up to where we started or the inverse of that. So it could be a spike down and then coming back up. We might even go above where we started because of the relief from that pain, you might say, um, and then slowly evening back out over time. So what happens if you add up a bunch of these sort of spikes um, and of all different sizes, all different time scales, um, what you end up with is a graph that looks, from a distance it looks kind of like a sinusoid, just a wave up and down, and it's just trending on that baseline. So that's that, you know, what I would call the constant happiness in the long run. Um, and it's just going up above and then down below, up above. But then if you look a little bit closer at that wave, it has a bunch of little waves on that as well. So it's just this, we have moment to moment variations, but the, we also have day to day variations. If you zoom out a bit more, you have week to week, month to month, year to year, even decade to decade. Um, so we can have these sorts of variations in uh, happiness at every time scale. Um, but sort of what the lesson of looking things through the lens of hedonic adaptation tells us is that any push in one direction away from our baseline will cause a trend back in the other direction. And um, there are multiple ways to interpret this. Um, one is basically just to say that we adjust to whatever we expect. So we could say that happiness and suffering are essentially relative to what we expect. Um, so that, you know, a, a good example I like to use to, uh, explain this is, um, you know, why do children get spoiled? For example, and I'm not saying all children get spoiled, but I'm saying like there's there's the image of a spoiled child. Pretty much anyone um, has some sort of image of that. And what's happening there? Well, they basically have been trained to expect to get whatever they want, and so then when they're in you know facing real world challenges and uh, things aren't working out as they expect, that will seem terrible to them. Whereas, you know, to someone who's not the parent who spoiled them or whatever the situation might be, someone from the outside is looking at that like, what is going on? Why are they freaking out? This is totally normal. Like all they did was stub their toe or, you know, some something that should be kind of trivial. Um, like a stubbing a toe, that's always going to hurt. But like, say, say, for example, like the child asks for ice cream and, you know, a spoiled child would maybe freak out if they don't get the ice cream because they're like, I get ice cream whenever I want. Um, but you know, a normal child might not freak out so much because, um, they're used to only getting ice cream on special occasions. Um, so I think that's sort of a good place to start the conversation. So coming back to my experience with depression in high school and 
what I learned from uh, using marijuana. I think marijuana definitely played a role in those depressive tendencies. Um, there were a lot of other factors as well, but uh, the reason I'm talking about it is actually less that and more that it helped me to understand that um, this sort of idea of constant happiness over time is actually a way to escape depression because it if you really see things through that lens the lens of hedonic adaptation you understand that you know no matter how bad things get and actually the worse things get the more there will be sort of a under like a force coming from underneath that pushes things back up and like that's what it looks like on the graph what's actually happening internally is you become used to the lower baseline so for example like someone who becomes paraplegic they're not doomed to being like horrifically traumatized the rest of their life necessarily many people who suffer such injuries actually um are able i mean obviously it's terrible for a while but they're actually able to you know adjust to that and and often they end up actually being happy relative to many people because they have like such an appreciation for the little things and um and that sort of stuff over time so we can see in this case it can actually be sort of like a it's a big dip down but then you go up and come actually above where you started and then sort of coast out on that um, and because it's such a big issue, such a hugely negative spike at first, you actually end up being able to coast on the, uh, the upside of that for, I mean, years potentially. Because if you think about it, like if you're used to, say you lose, say we're talking about someone who loses a leg or, or whatever, they're, they're, they're forced to sit in a wheelchair say that happens when they're 20 years old that first 20 years of their life they're used to having legs and so that you know that's going to be a huge change and uh and this sort of hedonic adaptation graph we have to look on the you know 20 year lifespan just as the build up to this moment right because that's how long they're accustomed to having legs and then suddenly they don't have that that's ripped away and so it's going to be a huge negative dip it could lead them to to like horrible depression for months maybe even years but it's going to also cause that trend where when they do accept it they're actually going to be able to come up above where they started and then coast out like on the upside of sort of, I guess you could think of it as like the relief of embracing that whole situation and developing a new appreciation for, um, for life and all that. So, so the lesson I learned from using marijuana in high school is that, um, you know, the biggest lesson that I took at the time anyway was that no matter how bad I may feel in one given moment, I know I'll always be 
able to come back up. And in fact, the lower things feel, um, the more sort of, I'm going to be accelerating back up. And now the flip side of that, of course, is basically the, the takeaway there is we're buffered against changes to our happiness in the long run, um, because we adjust and we, you know, we adjust our expectations and, uh, pain, suffering, happiness, and all that is relative to our expectations. So then if we look at it on the flip side of that, on the, um, like in terms of things making us happy, this is a part where it's kind of a downer in a sense, because we start to see that there isn't any way where our happiness graph just looks like it's an uphill situation throughout our whole life. Um, that's just not really how it works. Um, because if that, it, like, if we do have that, then we become accustomed to that. And, and that actually flattens that out. We, we expect, you know, whatever ways we're sort of, um, things are getting better for us over life. We just sort of learn to expect that rate of improvement. And then that actually flattens out. And so you can maybe think of like an increase in the increase and like have a, you know, exponentially accelerating improvement in life, well-being and yeah, I mean, there's no time, there's no specific time scale in which that can't happen. Um, but what the looking at things through the lens of hedonic adaptation sort of tells us is that there's always like an internal force, like it's an internal buffering mechanism neurologically in how our consciousness works that we adjust to whatever we expect and then things kind of flatten out and, and trend towards baseline over time. Um, so yeah, I mean, it can be a bit of a downer, but as I discussed in episode two, the utopian trap ultimately leads to nihilism. So we don't, we really, we should be vigilant of painting a picture where you, ex, you know, you want your life to be that constant uphill sort of, um, graph because it's just not realistic. And the reality is that if you fully believe in something like that, where you end up is actually, um, falling into nihilism. Um, so, you know, looking at things through the lens of hedonic adaptation also sort of helps us to understand that the utopian trap is a trap. Um, you can't do that. Like you can't actually achieve that. And, and the science there, there's plenty of science, um, on this to explain that. Speaking of which, uh, I would like to reference Dr. Lori Santos. I took her class on Coursera. It's called the science of happiness. I'll probably do another episode, um, diving deeply into the specific topics that she um, touches on. But if you want a professional reference for the sort of quote unquote science that I'm referencing here, I would, uh, I would defer to her work. All right. So we've talked about how 
looking at things through the lens of hedonic adaptation helps us to understand that we shouldn't let despair get the best of us and we should not let a utopian vision be too seductive because ultimately both of those things um, we are more resilient to those things than than we might seem which can seem like a bad thing in the utopian scenario but um, I would argue not really but I think really the biggest lesson that I've learned from the science on hedonic adaptation is that we really shouldn't be trying to maximize our happiness, at least not in a hedonic sense. We shouldn't let ourselves fall into the trap of trying to maximize pleasure like oh you know if i smoke weed at just the right times and then i you know drink a cup of coffee at the right time and and have a few drinks at the right time that i can get to this place where everything's good all the time um i think it's easy to sort of fall into a narrative where you've kind of convinced yourself of that um, and there are a lot of reasons for that i mean it could be that regardless of using any of those things, you're just in a good mood for that week or whatever because of some completely different reason. Like maybe you're having success in a new romantic relationship or something. And so everything just feels good and you might be tempted to attribute that to various substances. But I think that's sort of the trap of these substances is um, they, they don't create new happiness for you to have in a hedonic sense. All they do is give you a tool for choosing when to feel happy, but it's really a trap because then you build a narrative in your head that, oh, it's smoking that weed that made me happy when that's not really what's going on. Um, so I think like the kind of the big overarching lesson, at least for me, is that we shouldn't really be trying to maximize happiness because we do that by default like if you believe that happiness is constant in the long run you can't really do anything to meaningfully maximize or minimize it um, what we should instead be focused on is how to maximize meaning so that's kind of I mean, that's really the key takeaway is like, we shouldn't be focused on what feels good or bad per se. We should focus on what we think we should do, what we think is actually good for us to do. Um, you know, things, how do we get a sense of meaning for our life? And uh, I mean, there's there's so much there to, to dig into. Um, I think one of the big ones is like, and, and I'll have an entire other episode on this, at least I'm sure, but um, just like kind of really listening to your intuition and and not not letting yourself fall too strictly into kind of the narrative that you've worked up. And, you know, if if you feel in your gut that it would be right to say a certain thing to, to a certain someone, maybe don't let yourself, you know, don't let your narrative sort of prevent you from from doing that because 
if you really feel strongly about that deep down, you will have a strong sense of meaning um, in confronting that. So, I mean, that's just one example. Um, so, yeah, I mean, kind of the flip side of that or like seeing it from the other point perspective is like the reason to focus on maximizing meaning. I mean, obviously we want to do that, but um, from a hedonic perspective even is like to fail to focus on meaning is to let yourself sort of fall into nihilism. Uh, I mean, anyone who's drunk too much or, you know, whatever, eaten too much or every, everyone at times has felt this sense of like kind of emptiness of like, oh, I did that thing and it felt good at that time. But now like it, it leaves you empty, you know, it really leaves you feeling empty and that's nihilism starting to creep in. So like the deeper you sort of dig yourself into that either utopian trap or, you know, whatever you want to just like falling into, um, trying to do things that are more and more pleasurable without having really a sense of meaning to them. Um, once that pleasure wears off, once that sort of drug wears off, whatever that drug may be, um, you fall into this state of nihilism and, uh, the sense of meaninglessness. Um, so that's what we, that's what we really want to avoid because I mean, that's really the, that's the worst that things get. I mean, when you, when things aren't only bad, but they also seem pointless, it's like, that's when you start to be tempted to, to think, you know, why not just end it all? Why not just exit the game? Why not just, you know, press restart on the simulation. Maybe, maybe if you're actually feeling kind of optimistic, that's how you, that's how you would think about it. Um, I think the, like the ultimate trap is to sort of let yourself fall into this utopian trap time and time again, this sort of hedonistic trap time and time again, such that you're regularly dipping down into that nihilistic, meaningless sort of sense of despair. And I mean, this is, you know, for example, alcoholism or any sort of drug addiction will get you here where you just find yourself time and time again in this headspace where things just can feel really meaningless and like, it seems like the only point in your life is to get to that next drink or whatever it might be. And that's, that's a trap. That's really, that's really the, the sign you're deep in a trap. Um, so I think, you know, understanding things through the lens of hedonic adaptation can really help us escape from that trap. Because if we understand and truly believe that happiness is a constant in the long run, we can see through the temptation to take that next drink. If we, if we know that it's like part of this cycle that we're stuck in that keeps leading us to nihilism, we can see that 
you know, we're, we're not actually going to be less happy if we don't have that drink. All, I mean, realistically, all you're going to do is give yourself an opportunity to develop a sense of meaning and escape from that nihilistic trap. So. So I think another uh, really interesting thing to look at through this lens is materialism. Basically, I mean, as I argued in particularly episode three, but uh, episode two as well, I argued that modern society, especially in the US, has become very materialistic. And I think a big part of that is that people are trying to sell things. Um, so, you know, people sell you these sort of utopian visions of like how having this thing will make your life great. And um, that sort of like really letting yourself believe that is letting yourself sort of be trapped by the temptation of hedonism in a sense. It's you're like, you're sort of like letting someone sell you a vision of, hey, this will make you happy. But then what actually happens is, yeah, it makes you a little bit happier for a little while. And then when it wears off and you're kind of like, yeah, whatever, you kind of end up feeling a little bit depressed. You're like, well, you know, that didn't make me as happy as I thought it would or hoped it would. And so all this sort of like selling you promises that are like, oh, they're sexy and it feels good for a minute. And then you end up feeling empty after all, like no matter how much material wealth you have, you know, you just get used to it. And then it stops being this um, amazing thing. You end up sort of becoming pessimistic and just think, well, like, will anything ever make me happy? <laughs> and um, I mean, what hedonic adaptation tells us is basically no, like things don't make you happy consistently in the long run. Um, what, what really is gonna, you know, raise your overall sense of well-being is cultivating a sense of meaning in your life. And I mean, at least for me, physical things just have a very, very limited uh, capacity to develop a sense of meaning. Um, so, I mean, I mean, if you look at our society today, like depression is so common and, and like materially, were so much wealthier than anyone in history ever was. But if you think about someone in hunter-gatherer times, like, do you think they ever considered killing themselves? I, I don't think so, because I think, you know, they're immersed in this natural beauty, and yes, there are these painful things, but they're not things that they would ever be like, oh, the fact that they're, that pain exists means I should just end it all. No, I mean, it's like, they're being stalked by a predator or something and they're like it's kind of exciting and then um, you know obviously terrifying and they want to escape that but at no point in like the animalistic lifestyle 
would anybody be tempted to kill themselves, right? So where does that come from? Well, it comes from this nihilism, this nihilism that's a result of kind of the utopian trap, um, which is especially uh, easy to fall into in this materialistic society where everyone has a lot to gain personally, materially, by selling material things, selling visions of you know, happiness to people. Okay, so let's take a step back here from the big picture lessons and sort of fill in the picture a bit with some specific examples. So as I said, we can look at basically everything, every experience, everything we put into our body, every thought that comes to our head as having sort of a drug-like effect if we're focusing just on that hedonic graph, you might say. Um, and these things have, you know, a hedonic effect at all different sorts of timescales. So, so let's flesh that out a little bit. If we start at a really small timescale, um, say, for example, Let's just take a bunch of examples. So one, say you kiss your partner that you love very much. That's going to feel really nice in that moment, right? And it's going to probably feel nice for a while after that. Um, and like just you'll be thinking about, you know, how great it is to have someone to share your life with and have this bond with and and that's amazing and beautiful um but from a purely hedonic perspective of course there's always the flip side of that where does where does that lead well you know if you're at work all day by the end of the day you're probably going to be feeling a little bit of separation anxiety you might say you'll be you know feeling like you really miss them and and that and so during that time you'll probably be a bit below your baseline when you're thinking about those those feelings and and such but then when you go back and meet them that's going to be a great relief from that pain and um you know your happiness will shoot back up so from a purely hedonic perspective again um you know, moment to moment, these things sort of even out in the long term. Um, but yeah, I mean, not to say you shouldn't bother with romance just because of hedonic adaptation. If that romance has a sense of meaning in your life, then of course you should. And I think that's the real lesson there. It's just focus on the meaning. So on the day-to-day -day scale, we can look at things like exercise, sleep, work, relaxation. So exercise, um, as I mentioned in the Utopian Trap, episode two, exercise can often be a form of suffering meaningfully, right? Because it can be painful. It can be, it can be like 
a lot of effort and just very uncomfortable to do certain kinds of exercise. But if you understand and believe that it's going to make you feel better after, it's going to improve your health, um, and it's just overall a good thing to do, it's going to make you more productive and ultimately serve other things in your life that give you a sense of meaning, then that's a meaningful form of suffering. And, and suffering meaningfully is, is hugely important, um, as I argued in, in that episode. Um, so then sleep, for example, uh, well, I mean, we can talk about whether or not it's fun to sleep. <laughs> I guess that depends on what sort of dream you're having. And, and there's a whole sleep science, which maybe I'll dig into at some point. Um, but really the main thing I want to point out here is like, depending on how good a night's sleep you get, you will be, you know, more or less productive the next day. And so getting a good night's sleep basically serves, um, where, where, whatever it is that you derive meaning from getting it, being well rested is definitely going to help that. Um, even though it can be tempting to, you know, stay up late drinking or something, for example, you know, if over the course of the next day or two, you're doing less meaningful activities overall, because you sort of fell into that hedonistic trap, then that's not great. And I don't mean to suggest that like there can't be meaning associated with drinking. I think, you know, I drink somewhat regularly or honestly more than I would care to admit. Um, and, uh, I think it's, you know, a powerful social lubricant that does facilitate meaningful interactions for me, but that's definitely a balance. I'm, you know, I, I'm always aware of and trying to trying to be cognizant of there. Um, so then work, that can be another form of meaningful suffering. And it doesn't mean that like, you shouldn't be able to like your work, or even really enjoy your work. Um, but I mean, there are problems with that, too. If you really like it, you can become a workaholic. And then you know, maybe your romantic relationship suffers, stuff like that. So, you know, hedonistically things balance out over time. Um, but if you can work and you feel like what you're doing matters, it's an important thing to be done, then that's can, that can be a meaningful form of suffering and um, help to make you resilient against nihilism for all the same reasons. Um, so then relaxation that can be a, you know, if, if you were working all day and it was kind of a hard day, then relaxation is going to be a time in which you feel relief from that. Right. So that's going to be good and, uh, or it's going to feel good. And, um, it's also going to help you, you know, rest up so that you can go back and work tomorrow, which is presumably serving that overall sense of meaning you're getting from your life. So relax, relaxation is definitely really important towards, um, for cultivating that meaning. Now, of course, too much relaxation, um, you end up starting to feel not so good. You're not really, you know, if you relax for three days in a row, let's say, or 
let's say you spend a week on the beach, you know, it's going to be nice the first couple of days. And then, you know, after that, you're probably going to start to feel a bit anxious and like restless and like the, there's not really a sense of meaning to it after a certain point. And so you feel desire to get back to work. Um, and these sorts of things. So that's kind of like sort of like a day to day or even coming into the week to week range of like how different behaviors and uh, things can affect us hedonically. Um, so like, yeah, so like a week to week, you know, maybe you have a really stressful week and then you have a week of vacation. And those are examples of like, the stressful week, you're hedonically, you're probably going to dip pretty low, but then once you get over that, it's going to be, it's going to feel really good to relax, right? So we can sort of see this dipping down and then dipping back up and that kind of evening out over time, over the course of like a two week span. And so as we zoom out on our hedonic graph, what we see is like, so if you take that, it's the dip down, the dip up over the course of the week. But then within that, there's the day-to-day -day kissing the spouse or, you know, stubbing your toe, whatever it is, where there's all these little flux fluctuations superimposed onto that bigger graph. And then as we zoom out even more, you know, we can go month to month. Um, you know, maybe you're struggling with congestion for a month and that's just... It's a total drag. It's making it exercise uh, less enjoyable. It's making sort of everything less enjoyable. Um, but then, you know, when you do feel good again, you're going to feel kind of even better than you do before you were sick. Cause you're going to be like, yes, I'm back at it. I'm back to, you know, full capacity. And so, um, that can feel really nice. Another month to month example would be like, if you get a promotion, I mean, that could also be like a year to year example, but you know, something to do with your job where, you know, things are going significantly better now at work this month or, or these couple months, you know, after struggling with having this issue with this one coworker or, you know, feeling like your boss wasn't really appreciating you as much as they could have. Um, that, that's sort of how things, we might have something affect us on like a hedonic wave that, the uh, the wavelength of which would be like on the scale of months right and then um all those things we were talking about are superimposed on that now and so zoom out to a year you know maybe you finally have a good romantic relationship and that's something you've been struggling with the past few years but it feels like this past year like things were really good and so like even on the scale of years, things can get significantly better or significantly worse. Um, worse in the case of like, maybe you really thought you found your person, but then it ended up not working out for some unexpected reason, or they were lying to you or something. Um, any of those things can sort of have a very noticeable effect on your hedonic graph over the course of years. Right, and so this is why, <laughs> This is kind of why the lesson of hedonic adaptation is so unintuitive, right? If we say happiness is constant in the long run, well, what does long mean? Long is relative, right? So over any particular time span, our happiness graph may look very not constant, right? It may 
seem like it's going down in a big way or seem like it's going up in a big way. Um, and that's true, but we do have these internal buffering mechanisms where it will even out given a long enough time span. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, we can zoom out even further decade to decade. Um, you know, if you spent the first two decades of your life, uh, you know, just being a kid, not really worrying about anything. And then suddenly you like have to become an adult. You have to pay your own bills. You have all these like things to worry about. That could be a case of that graph making a really big dip for that next decade or whatever it might be. Um, you know, but on the, on the inverse, so many other things are changing. Probably some things that like seemed not so great. Like you didn't really have power over, um, your own life in certain ways. Like you felt like you were beholden to your parents on things and you didn't understand. And maybe that was like a building sort of tension for you in your life. Now, suddenly those things get better. So, you know, on multiple fronts, maybe things sort of even out in some ways, but every individual thing also evens out on sort of an individual basis. So from a purely hedonic as, uh, perspective, we're like adding up all these hedonic effects from all these different things and um, superimposing them on each other. So over the quote long run, which means if you zoom out long enough, um, if you zoom out far enough, things will even out over time. But moment to moment on any time scale, it doesn't feel like that, right? And so I guess really kind of, there are exceptions, you might say, in that um, depending on your beliefs about death, I guess, like if you experience a major downhill and then well, I guess one example would be suicide, right? If you have a big enough downhill uh, or stay low enough long enough, you might be tempted to end it. And, um, you know, that graph is going to look like it went down, 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 and then just stopped, right? So in a very real sense, that's kind of like the worst case scenario um, from really any perspective, but certainly the hedonistic perspective. And then on the flip side, you know, it's possible that someone just has a particular, uh, particular trajectory in life where they're on a pretty steady uphill or, you know, maybe they're on a meteoric uphill and die young and never, you know, that never evens out. Um, but those are kind of like, not really, you know, who's planning to die in the next year or 10 years or, or whatever it is where like it really makes sense to um, focus too much on stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, quickly, I just want to say like, all this is not to say you shouldn't, you know, try to reduce suffering in your life. It's just, you shouldn't try to reduce meaningful suffering. Right, because really, what what this all tells us is we want to we want to maximize meaning. So we should reduce, we should do everything we can to reduce forms of suffering that don't seem meaningful. Right, if we don't have to suffer, 
um, you know, maybe some physical ailment. If we don't have to have that physical ailment, then yeah, we should try to come up with technology that helps us overcome, you know, that particular thing. And that's good. But it doesn't make us all infinitely happier for the rest of time, right? Like our medical technology is so much better now than it's ever been. And yet over the course of a lifespan, we are no more happier now than people living thousands of years ago. I mean, I, tr I truly believe that. And, and I think actually, given the current meaning crisis, in a very real sense, we're less happy because our happiness is much less meaningful in a lot of cases. And, and I think that's sort of an interpretation of the whole modern meaning crisis and why people are depressed, why people are even suicidal at times. Um, and I mean, another way to look at this is like, our, our conscious mechanisms really just aren't designed to max to, to eliminate suffering or to, or to maximize pleasure, right? They are designed to seek out challenges, you know, we're designed to do things that seem meaningful for, um, a bunch of different reasons. So this very like utopian idea that we should be striving to eliminate suffering or i mean i would even go so far as to say the idea of achieving world peace is um it's kind of a dubious one because basically the the assumption there is that conflict is bad but conflict is an inherent property of consciousness and i'm not in any way trying to advocate for physical violence, but I think even if we do eliminate physical violence, we're still going to have conflicts within our own mind. I mean, people can become suicidally depressed out of boredom. So, you know, eliminating suffering doesn't really eliminate suffering, right? If, if we're eliminating, you know, a sense of meaning, when we eliminate suffering, that leads to boredom, nihilism, which is, in my interpretation, the greatest form of suffering. So there's just no way to escape. We have like a natural tendency to seek out challenges. You know, we have these, and I, and I mean, little things every day, like you get hungry, that's a form of suffering, right? That's, that's a little bit of pain telling you, hey, you need to go do this thing. And then you go eat something and you feel great. And it's like overall, hedonically, there was nothing problematic about that situation, right? So um, just important to sort of keep that in mind. So, okay, I want to shift towards focusing on alcohol specifically for a while um, because I think this is this is a big one it's really easy to fall into a habit of drinking too much and having that tendency really not serve us in any ways this is something that I've struggled with at times this is something that some people in my family friends and family definitely struggle with a lot. And I think, I think it's just really common in society. One of the reasons 
you know, this is more true of alcohol than other things is because it's such an like normalized, well, legal, um, form of like what could be considered pretty much purely hedonic sort of drug, right? Like people, people drink alcohol because they have an association with that putting them in a mood where they have fun, right? So it's about sort of just having a good time um, for a lot of cases. Um, so let's talk about, let's talk about alcohol for a little while here. So I think one of the big things to notice about alcohol is that it's not actually just the alcohol. Um, like if you were to just drink, you know, pure alcohol water, I mean, you'd have to water it down, right? Because it would just burn your mouth otherwise, but that's not really going to feel all that great. So I think this is something people don't realize uh, or don't fully realize often is that actually there's almost always some form of sugar in the alcoholic beverage. So, I mean, this is certainly true of any sort of cocktail, but even beer has carbs. Um, and so what that does is actually give us, you know, sugar, the effect it has like neurochemically is pretty similar to cocaine. I mean, um, obviously it's not like the same magnitude of effect, but it's the same uh, hedonic graph, you might say, where it's a, an immediate bump up in mood and then like followed by an almost immediate crash. So this is why, this is actually a big part of why when we drink, we want to be sipping consistently over the course of hours because otherwise that sugar crash is really going to um, be making us feel worse than we were before we took the drink in the first place. So I think that's actually a big part of the habituation um, in alcohol use is, is actually the, the sugar component that people sort of shrug off. I mean, if you, you know, if you eat candy on a daily basis, you, you can see this clearly, like within minutes or certainly within hours after eating a significant amount of sugar, you're going to be feeling lethargic. Like it's going to boost your energy for a little bit. Um, that probably won't be a particularly productive boost of energy. Um, and then the rest of the day, you're just going to be feeling lower energy and have that craving for that next hit, if you will, that hit of sugar. And I think that's a big part of what plays into the habituation of alcohol as well. You know, if you spend hours drinking beer one night, then the next day, a big part of why you don't feel so great is because your body's used to having much more sugar running through it as well. Um, the effect of alcohol itself is much more of a dissociating effect and a relaxing effect. And so the come down from alcohol is a cortisol spike. So increased stress. And then, um, so that's kind of the effect of the alcohol, uh, the alcoholic 
hedonic graph is like there's a spike in a sense of well-being because we feel relaxed we feel like socially um loose you might say like in a good way um you can become belligerent but i would say that's actually usually an interaction with sugar largely is because that sugar is like um sort of that stimulant is pushing you to a place where you have a lot of energy and then um, the alcohol is kind of dissociating you from actually thinking about how, where to put that energy sort of so it creates this dynamic where you just like have a lot of energy you're trying to get rid of. Um, but anyway, so I think all those things kind of create a temptation to habituate this um, and, uh, so that next day, you know, you'll be craving sugar, a big part of what you're craving when you, you know, you're thinking that next day, man, it might be nice to go for another beer. It's like, you're craving that sugar, um, as well as you're craving to reduce your cortisol because you're, you know, you're stressed, but you're feeling lethargic, stressed from the cortisol spike after alcohol and lethargic from, well, largely from the, uh, blood sugar equation um so so it becomes tempting to you know go for that next drink the next day uh the next day but in doing so you're digging yourself deeper into this hedonic trap you're sort of making that graph more and more volatile um or in some ways it's less volatile because you're getting you're going to get less of an upswing the second day, right? The effects diminish over time, but the effects of your body having to process all those unnecessary chemicals and stuff is going to have a really, a very real reduction in your productivity and ultimately your sense of meaning and push you towards nihilism over time. So that's the real problem with it is letting yourself fall into this habituation where you're kind of digging yourself deeper and deeper into this um, nihilistic trap. Um, so yeah, I mean, a big part of why alcohol and, and other dissociating sort of drugs um, seem really good from a hedonic perspective is that that um, that dissociation can help induce a flow-like state right where and so okay flow is basically where you're in between boredom and anxiety right you're doing something where you have enough skills that you're not anxious about it, but it's not so easy that you're bored, right? And what alcohol does in part is lower your ability level to the point where like things that would otherwise be routine are kind of challenging and you're like, oh, I'm a little bit off balance. So suddenly like it's fun just to, you know, do whatever. Um, do things you probably shouldn't do because if you mess up, you could get hurt, uh, ride a bike or whatever it might be. Um, so that's, you know, that's a big part of, I think, why people have a positive association with alcohol and other dissociative drugs is it, it can help induce a flow-like state. 
but it's not a flow-like state where you really have a strong sense of meaning from that the next day, right? I mean, you can get into a flow-like state in any number of ways. You can get into flow and in work, uh, in reading a book, in all, all kinds of different things. Um, but yeah, that, I think that's part of the trap there is, you know, drinking can seem like it basically induces flow and there's some truth there, but that's a, that's sort, that's really sort of a dubious interpretation. I mean, basically it's a fake flow state because it feels like flow, but then the next day often you regret whatever you were doing. So it's not meaningful flow. It's not real flow. It's not the kind of flow we should be trying to cultivate. Um, okay, so briefly I want to just touch on kind of a curious um, aspect to this discussion, which is my personal relationship with alcohol, um, at least over the past, well, about a year ago, for two years before that. So there was about a two, maybe three year period there where I had sort of uh, in a relationship with alcohol that I haven't really touched on yet. And that is basically that I was using alcohol as much for the cortisol spike as I was for the immediate um, relaxation and uh, dissociation and and um, the sugar spike uh, going along with that as well. So during this time, I was I was working a lot. I was making a lot of money, um, but I have never been a very materialistic person. So making money doesn't have a strong sense of meaning for me um, in general. However, I was making six figures for the first time in my life. So it felt like, you know, this was a time where I should just like, sort of just live this through, ha get this experience under my belt. And so oh, there was like a overarching sense of meaning to it where I was like, okay, this is like, I'm validating myself as a professional software developer or whatever. And so there was that, but like day to day, um, the things I was working on didn't give me a very strong sense of meaning. And so I found myself sort of struggling to do all that much work often. Um, and I fell into this habit of using alcohol, I think as much for the cortisol spike as anything, because what I would find is that if I would drink a little too much before a day of work, I would wake up feeling stressed, feeling guilty, and that would make it really easy for me to do this work that would otherwise feel kind of meaningless because basically I would feel sort of a sense of um, like, like I, w I was feeling guilty and so work would give me relief from that sense of guilt, right? <laughs> so I kind of developed this weird like workaholism, alcoholism dynamic um, 
And I think, you know, th this is just like basically an example of how complex, um, you know, real life scenarios can get uh, where, you know, the, the hedonic interpretation is just is just one viewpoint. Um, you know, plenty of people use coffee in the morning, for example. I can't do it, but a lot of people, you know, seem to think that that helps them be more productive. And so maybe they get a sense of meaning from that. It doesn't do that for me, so I can't really um, be much of a judge of that. But it's kind of, in a sense, I was kind of using alcohol in that sense. I would drink the night before so that I would wake up and be able to be really productive. Um, yeah, in kind of a weird way. I, don't, I haven't heard anyone else... Uh, describe their relationship with alcohol in that way. So um, maybe that's just uh, unusual, but, but yeah, so I think kind of the key takeaway from the um, alcohol case study is that we, if, you know, if we're looking at it through the lens of hedonic adaptation, we can see that it's not making us more happy in the long run. Um, so all we should really be paying attention to is how it's interacting with our sense of meaning in life. And I think the problem with alcoholism is it gets people to a place where they have a reduced sense of meaning in life and yet are tempted to keep drinking and drink more and more. And that's really the trap there. Um, but I think part of the trap is also that we can tell ourselves stories about how the drinking, how that habit actually is a source of meaning in our life. And I, it's tr true to a limited degree, right? I mean, alcohol can be a social lubricant and social interactions are very much a huge source of meaning for people. I would say basically everyone. Um, so, you know, to the extent to which the alcohol is facilitating meaningful social interactions, it does uh, help us build a sense of meaning in our life. However, if we're really honest with ourselves, how much do we get from that, you know, on a week to week basis, like realistically, that probably only justifies drinking a couple nights a week at most. Um, and it also can kind of create a trap where we're sort of inflating the sense of meaning we're getting from activities we do when we're drunk or, you know, having drinks. And that's actually diminishing our ability to have meaningful social interactions in other contexts. Um, I mean, I, to me, like, there's no reason that alcohol is necessary to maximize meaning in social interactions, right? If you have a healthy approach to social interactions, if you have a healthy mindset about why you're doing what you're doing, it's really not going to help at all. It's probably just going to inhibit your ability to communicate well. Um, so I would say that's a it's, a, it's a good sign of health if you aren't tempted to quote unquote enhance social interactions with the use of alcohol. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that plays into kind of a more general issue. And this is something I'd like to have an episode on as well of sort of moving towards 
a place where we societally have a stronger sense of what you might call authentic discourse, um, where it's more encouraged to like really, you know, be honest with yourself, be honest with each other. But it's, it's not just about hon honesty, it's about authenticity. It's about being genuinely interested in what people have to say and stuff like that. And just sort of cultivating these meaningful social interactions um, and not feeling the need to, you know, use alcohol to create a situation where it feels like it's okay to kind of be experimental socially. Um, you know, there's no reason we need to have alcohol to experiment socially. And there's also no reason to think that the alcohol is really helping you run that experiment more effectively in most cases. All right, so alcohol check. Let's move on to talking about career. And so this is this is very much wrapped up with material wealth, um, right? Because your material, one's material wealth is usually very much linked to their career path. Um, so if we look at, if we look at our motivations in our career path through the lens of hedonic adaptation, what it tells us is that material, I mean, one of the main things I think it is worth noticing is that it, it tells us that material wealth is not a end which justifies the means, so to speak. So I think the main thing to be cognizant of here is that if you feel like what you're doing only gives you a sense of meaning because you believe it will maximize your material wealth in the long run, I think that's usually a dubious narrative to be telling yourself um, because if it really is a purely materialistic thing, then, I mean, you'll get that riches, hopefully. I mean, if things go well, you'll get that riches. Um, and, you know, it'll be nice for a while, but it's not really going to provide a sense of meaning for you. So if you felt like, if you feel like you sacrificed your personal integrity or sense of self-respect in anyway compromise those things in your pursuit of material wealth you're gonna end up probably in a state of nihilism where you realize well you know all these things don't really give me what i actually want and um you know now i just am guilt-ridden from you know maybe being cutthroat in my career trajectory for however long or or whatever it might be so I think, you know, understanding that we're not maximizing our happiness through pursuit of material wealth, understanding that what really matters is cultivating a sense of meaning in our lives and in our career path. I think that is a really healthy guiding principle for, to, uh, to help someone choose what they want to do in their career.
All right, so let's talk about video games because video games are a really interesting uh, and more and more prevalent, you know, people play more and more video games these days, especially young people, and the effects they have are varied and dynamic and, and interesting and concerning in some ways. And um, yeah, I think this is another thing that we can look at through the lens of hedonic adaptation to gain some valuable insight. So, I mean, at first glance, we can talk about video games sort of as a drug in a hedonic sense. When you're playing a video game, like, I mean, lots of video games are like first-person shooters, for example, you get a little hit of, you know, excitement and gratification when you get the kill or whatever it is, you know, there's this tension and this buildup of like, and, and it's a challenge, right? Video games are really good at getting you into a flow-like state, and it is flow, but I would say it's not uh, necessarily the kind of flow we want to be cultivating too much, um, which I'll talk about. But basically, we're at this point where it's like the video game puts us in a world where there are constraints to the point where we know what our objective is and we have some pretty clear ideas about how to try to achieve that objective. But then that's also being balanced by maybe it's a multiplayer game, so other people are also good at the game and you're, you know, pitted against each other. So it's hard. You're, you're like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to beat them. And you're in that optimal state where you're not bored. You're not anxious because you know what you want to do. You're not bored because it's challenging and you have to stay focused. So it hijacks this flow like state. And then all these little things sort of have a hedonic effect. You get the kill. Boom. That's a boost of excitement. And then, but it also raises your baseline. You know, if you become used to getting kills, then you need more and more kills to keep feeding that sort of uh, the fun you're having there. On on the inverse of that is like, if you start losing, like if you're used to getting a kill, you know, maybe every, you know, maybe half as often as you, or just as often as you kill someone, um, then and then suddenly you go through a whole game where you don't get a single kill and you get killed like 10 times or something, then that's probably going to feel really bad and uh, might result in rage. So, you know, all this hedonic sort of, this hedonic lens is very apl applicable to the video game world. Um, but I think it's particularly interesting when we look at how video games are really good at creating that flow-like state, that flow state, but the meaning you get there and that also the sense of self-transcendence, which is very much wrapped up with meaning, like in, you know, in a video game, it's, it's constrained enough that it's pretty straightforward how to get better. Like, I mean, going with the first person example, um, you know, you get better by practicing and then you see that like, if you play every day for a month, then you're going to be a lot better than you were at the start of the month. And that's like a very tangible improvement. Um, 
the issue with that is that the sense of meaning you get from that often doesn't really translate to other aspects of life. And now I don't mean to suggest that there's no meaning that we can derive from video games. I don't believe that. I think games are great and have a lot of value. They help people keep their minds sharp and all these things. But there's the other side of things where we're getting too invested in a game and the sense of meaning isn't translating into other aspects of our life. And this can manifest as habituation to the point where you might call it addiction, uh, where it can be really unhealthy because we find ourselves trapped in this place, much the same with alcohol or any sort of drug abuse, where we can't get really feel a sense of happiness anywhere but within that game. And so within that game world, that virtual world. And so we sort of get hooked on this narrative we're telling ourselves where we just want to be in that virtual world all the time. And then when you come out of it, it's like everything in real life is just a total drag. And um, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty dangerous spiral. So um, I would say that's comparable to pretty much any, any other drug um, that can be abused and sort of send you in this habit of digging yourself deeper and deeper into a hedonic trap in that way. So, I mean, again, the main takeaway is we need to be focusing on what aspects of the meaning in this virtual world, in this instance, can I actually translate to my real life? And keep an eye on that. I mean, one of the biggest things to keep to stay vigilant of here is it's so easy, like almost trivial to achieve a flow like state in a video game context that that can make it harder to achieve a flow like state outside of that context. And I think that's really the crux of the issue is you know, we need to be making sure we're doing multiple different forms of activities that help us get to that flow-like state so that we don't become addicted or obsessed with one particular form and, you know, find ourselves in a situation where we can't translate the meaning and self-transcendence that we're gaining from that flow state to other aspects of our lives. And so this is, um, this is somewhere I would wrap the conversation back towards religious thought. Um, so episode one, um, I made an argument for religious thought. And I think this, this kind of points back in that direction is one way of thinking about religious thought and the value of it is it helps you create a healthy internal framework, a healthy internal narrative of how to achieve flow and self-transcendence and find meaning in your life, in all aspects of your life. So, And I think that's really kind of the key 
value of religious thought is that so in a sense we can we can kind of bridge the gap between the video game world and the real world it's like if you have a religious a clear religious framework in your mind that can almost cre that can create a set of constraints for yourself that you've sort of bought into which act similarly to the constraints in the video game world and help it help you tell yourself a clear story about what you're doing and why, where you get meaning from. And then if you do that effectively, the result is it becomes very easy and natural to enter flow-like states and have experiences of self-transcendence in many different walks of life. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I hope that made sense. Um, to anyone with questions, I'm happy to dig deeper into uh, anything to do with looking at things through the hedonic lens. I found it super valuable for my own mental health and just overall um, mental framework for getting a sense of meaning in my life. Um, so again, the key takeaway is just, you know, these drugs or again, almost anything can be thought of as having a drug like effect from a hedonic perspective. These things, um, they allow you to have more control of when you feel happy, right? You take that sip of alcohol and then boom, immediately you get those benefits, but they're not the reason you feel happy. There's a deeper reason there, and they're not actually increasing your happiness over time. In many cases, and what we have to watch out for is letting these sorts of <clears throat> devices, tools, but also traps um, undermine the real sense of meaning that we get from our lives. And so, again, the main thing to keep in mind is just all you need to focus on for your own happiness is maximizing your personal sense of meaning. You can't actually meaningfully affect your happiness from a hedonic perspective. All you can do is focus on meaning. To maximize your meaning is to maximize your happiness in a real sense.